Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism, of course, is on the Meltdown Podcast Network and is brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, as well as the Wacko Superstore and Gallery 30 South in Pasadena. Also uh, brought to you by the Panic Collective. And so all of those you can find at their uh, prospective sounding addresses, which would be at Gallery 30 South, at Meltdown, at uh, PodSec, P-O-D-S-E-Q. Pod sequentialism. So uh, this is a very exciting episode for me, and um, I kind of can't understate how how excited I am to talk to uh, my guest today, Peter Lavenda, who is very well known in alternative history, um, has appeared on on shows on Guy and the History Channel, um, is probably best known among people who follow World War II um, research as the author of Ratline and Unholy Alliance and um, the Hitler Legacy, which all build a kind of uh, very strong support case for um, evidencing the escape of Nazis after World War II using things like the Vatican and um, and other friendly governments in order to set up their projects in other places. Um, and of course, since we know that none of the actual members of the National Socialist Party in Germany actually surrendered at World War II, the Nazi Party never surrendered and did continue on. But uh, Peter is also known for his Sinister Forces trilogy, which is sort of a unified field theory about um, conspiracies and incredibly well-written, incredibly well-researched. And uh, one thing that I will have to say about Peter Lavenda is as interested as I am in a lot of um, French history and, and somewhat conspiratorial content, I've always respected that Peter never goes in a direction that, that the research can't support. He always uses incredible footnoting and is very careful about his sources in a way that I feel that a lot of other people who have gotten to become rather popular in, in the genre have um, failed to maintain. And so I welcome, without further ado, Mr. Peter Lavenda to the program. Thank you very much, Matt. I hope I live up to that introduction. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. You know, when we when we first started getting into contact and um, and we were uh, sure that we were going to be able to get you on the show, um, you know, one thing that we're, we knew that wouldn't be a problem was covering content because you've written so many books about so many different things, all incredibly well-researched. And, you know, even going into the, the election, not this past presidential election, but the, the 2012 election, um, writing a book that kind of outlined the history of um, Mormons and politics, that it was surprising to me that the publisher didn't kind of get that out in front of the news cycle, because I think that that would have had um, an even larger impact on the outcome of that election. And and there's been several other books that I think have been really timely that I, I just I promote as often as I can because they're so well-researched. Your book, um, Drawing Parallels Between uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft and the um, the tradition of Dagon to um, Aleister Crowley and about similarities in their writings and historically dated things is, is just the type of thing that's got to be Hollywood magic. Thanks a lot. Um, a lot of what you we said regarding the Mormon book, for instance, uh, you'll be interested to know there was a lot of pushback uh, from media outlets on that book. Um, I did some uh, interviews about the Mormon book when it, when it had come out, The Angel and the Sorcerer, mm -hmm. and uh, I was cut off. Um, turns out that some of the outlets I was being interviewed on were owned by uh, Clear Channel, which was owned by, of course, the Romney people. Yeah, so Deseret, it was very much tied in a Deseret. Yeah, so a lot of, you know, there was a lot of pushback on that. We tried to get it out, but 
it, uh, like I say, the, the pushback was really strong against that book in, in 2012. And that's a great kind of jump off point to talk about your most recent project, because this is unlike almost any other um, project I think you've been connected to, been very embraced. Um, you know, working with uh, Tom from Blink-182 in his Secret Machines project and putting together the book Gods, uh, this has been timed perfectly in that the appetite from the public for disclosure about things that most people believe in, and until and it's not that there hasn't been a lack of evidence, it's been a lack of a cohesion in the reporting that um, right. that I think what you've successfully done in this project is, as you did with Sinister Forces, kind of take a look at this one aspect of, of the culture, this, this UFO phenomenon, and draw a historical line from the beginning to now. And by the beginning, I mean, it's kind of like looking at a Terrence Malick movie where you kind of go back to not quite pre, not quite to the dinosaur, but definitely to, um, to prehistory and outline the ideas of gods and religions and um, how there are references within canonical works from ancient cultures that address uh, their gods not so much as supernatural beings as interstellar travelers. And then you bring that forward into the time of record, into um, the 20th century, into the explosion of UFO um, reporting that's been happening since the 1940s, um, whether we're talking about the um, incident off the coast of Washington, or we're talking about Roswell and all these things are within a, a year and a half of each other, I believe, that yep. um, that there's a real um, amazing and evidentiary chain that, that leads us to where we are now. And now we've got, you've got people from the government that are coming out with your project and saying, yeah, this is true, and here's what we know. Yeah, it was... Um... It, I, I took a leap into it with, with the Tom Project, although I had already talked about this in, in Sinister Forces. I've always say that I, I come into the ufology uh, field through the back door, sort of. I, I wasn't one of the, the people who was just always uh, fascinated or a complete believer. I, there was just so much data and so much uh, evidence, uh, just a mountain of it. But what really fascinated me, though, was the fact that every time I tried to research something in American history, the UFO thing would come up. And it was just one of these nagging things that I had to address one way or the other. And, you know, researching the Kennedy assassination, you can't get away from the fact that, you know, uh, uh, Fred Crisman gets involved. You know, that, you know, here, here's a guy who's out on the West Coast in 47 when the first uh, when the uh, the Kenneth Arnold sightings had taken place, and there was the Maury Island affair. Yep. And there's there's Fred Crisman. He's like front and center in this seminal UFO event uh, in which two Air Force officers were killed. Mm-hmm. You know, in an airplane crash carrying debris supposedly from a UFO. So there's Fred Crisman back in '47, and then two we men and a dog, right? Two men, yeah, right. Two men and a dog, and then, a dog in a boat that was killed by debris as well. Yeah, the dog was killed too. Um, so now we fast forward 20 years and there's the Jim Garrison investigation in New Orleans into the Kennedy assassination and he subpoenas Fred Crisman. And it's mm-hmm. like, what? And then I start to pull at that and it turns out that Guy Bannister, you know, who was running that weird detective agency in Betrayed New Orleans. by Ed Asner in the JFK movie. Yep. Um, and, uh, we have Jack Martin who was portrayed by Jack, uh, Jack Lemon in, yep. in the JFK movie. This little consortium, Guy Bannister, 
cut his eye teeth as an FBI agent in the Pacific Northwest, sending telegrams back to J. Edgar Hoover on something called, you know, subject matter X. X. And it was all UFO stuff. And it was about what was going on on the West Coast with Prisman and all the other sightings that were taking place up there. So Guy Bannister and Fred Prisman are now both suspected in the Kennedy assassination, but they were both involved in the very first major UFO flap in American his modern American history. And for people I mean, who are unfamiliar, this is the origin of the TV show The X-Files. This goes back to these X-File documents that Guy Bannister put together for J. Edgar Hoover. Right, exactly. And you can download these files. I mean, the FBI has not tried to hide them. If you go to the FBI site and start looking at the UFO material, you're going to find them. You know, yep. uh, I have a stack of them. I printed them out because I couldn't believe what I was looking at. That there's Guy Bannister saying subject matter X, mm-hmm. and it's all UFO material, and he's he's communicating directly to J. Edgar Hoover. So was a lot this of that is the kind of, delivered yep. during the the Carter administration's massive declassification, or had that always been kind of out there? No, that came out later. I think the FBI didn't didn't really start declassifying until, like you say, Carter, and especially uh, during the Clinton administration, right. when a lot of the the assassination files were declassified. So. There's a, there were big document dumps that took place from you know the, the late seventies right into uh, modern times, more modern uh, year, times. So I w- I always go through all of that, and it, you can go blind because a lot of it's just um, cover pages, and a lot of it's been redacted so much there's nothing left. Yeah, or they're impossible to read. Anybody who's had much experience in um, in looking at declassified documents, it's it's a really hard nut to crack. And you know, recently when there was that kind of big dog and pony show uh, of Trump declassifying more JFK files and not declassifying everything, of course, um, it's just a massive mountain of words, and often the sentences don't make any sense. And there's so much black ink on the pages that it, it's you feel like you're looking at Rorschach tests rather than actual evidence, and there's no context given to them. So when you have just right. a stack of declassified documents, unless there's somebody who actually knows what they're doing, like a talented researcher like yourself who can go in and look at that that material and make sense of it, you know, John and Susie Q. Citizen, if they decide to spend 20 minutes looking into it, you know, at lunch, and they look at this stuff, it doesn't make any sense to them. So they 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 kind of rely on whatever headline pops out in the news cycle sure. about that. And depending upon where they get their news, there can be some some not just bad information, but the exact opposite of the intention of what is in the materials that's been declassified. You're you're exactly right. Sometimes what happens with these declassification uh, dumps of documents is is the actual meat of it is just hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there, but it takes so much effort to get to it. And you have to have, as you say, the context for it, that it can be really, really demanding to get at what, what is really there. And then when you try to explain it to someone, you find yourself having to explain the context first. And they get they become impatient. They yeah. just want to hear, well, what's the good stuff? You know? Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's how I got into the field. I just, I, I came into it sort of dragged, you know, by my hair into it because First of Crisman and and um, uh, Guy Bannister, but then later on, you know, other historical events that involve UFOs or UFO sightings and and the American to, um, Orthodox Catholic Church, bizarrely, bizarrely, yes, that too. So all of this other stuff, you know, started to 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 just creep up on me, and then I made that uh, what is now sort of an infamous um, presentation in Amsterdam about I don't know, about ten years ago, I guess on the secret space program. Yeah. And my, you know, my approach to it was to say, listen, guys, 
here's some really weird stuff that you probably don't know. If you're a ufologist, you're reading a lot of UFO books. But there's a lot of other stuff that pertains to the UFO phenomenon, which is just as fascinating. And it has to do with Hoover and it has to do with assassinations and it has to do with all this other stuff. So let's take a look at, you know, the rest of it, because there's just so much more. And if we really pay attention, we're going to see that the UFO phenomenon is really the ghost in the machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's there all over the place. And sometimes what we regard as political events may have actually more to do with the UFO phenomenon than we realized. So that just fascinated me. And well, eventually then I got the call from Tom DeLonge and, you know, the rest is history. Now, I can imagine how how I guess you get a call from somebody who's um, known for something completely else from what they're contacting you about. And it's always it's got to be jarring that, um, you know, you probably had a tangential understanding of who Tom was, um, that there sure. was this guy that was in Blink-182. And, and maybe you even had heard through the grapevine that he was interested in UFOs. And if you were familiar with the music, there's quite a few songs about it. But when you get a call like that, it's probably at first you're thinking like, this is a really weird prank phone call for someone to make, <laughs> you know, because I exactly. imagine you're not a huge Blink-182 fan. But at the same point, it's like it's it's always good to be uh, to be sought after by someone who is has got such a, a large following. And then when you figure out that they're for real, it's got to be like, OK, well, what do we do here? Well, exactly. When I first got the contact, I thought it was a hoax. I thought, you know, I recognized the band Blink-182, who, who doesn't really, even yeah. some of my advanced years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the name, you know, Tom DeLong. I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's that's the front man, isn't it, for Blink-182? Why why are they pranking me this way? I mean, yeah. <laughs> send, me, send me something from Muller or from Comey. Or, <laughs> and Margaret, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, something. Yeah. But in, and Mark, all right. But instead, what I get is, is this prank call, you know, what I thought was a prank call from Blink-182. Mm-hmm. And so before I responded, I did a quick background check. You know, is this even feasible? And uh, it seemed like it might be. And then we did have our conversation finally, and we spoke for hours over the first a couple of weeks in which he made contact uh, about what his, his goal was and what he was trying to accomplish. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, this guy obviously is serious about this. He's willing to put resources behind it, but more importantly, he wants to get at what the truth is and not just create a kind of an X-Files franchise. What he wants to do is to go after this. His, his words to me, I'll never forget them, is we're going to knock on doors. We're going to go wherever we have to go. We're going to find out what they know. And if we can't find out what they know, what they don't tell us might be as you know, revealing as what they do tell us. Let's just go and see and make a really concerted effort at this. Let's just talk to everybody we possibly can. And I thought that ufologists have been doing this all along, and it turns out not really. You right. know, there's there's been a kind of adversarial relationship between the UFO community and the government very because much they feel so. very much so. Well, they feel it, and and for good reason. The government has lied. Yeah, uh, they have covered up. Uh, they have engaged in, at times in disinformation campaigns directed at the UFO community. So obviously they're they're gun shy and they you know they don't trust anyone on that side of the fence. And at the same time. They keep agitating for disclosure. Well, where's disclosure going to come from? It's going to come from the military-industrial complex, right. right? It's going to come from the government. Yeah. So they want the disclosure. They want confirmation from the government, but they don't trust the government. So if the government does disclose, they're going to say the government is lying. I mean, you're in catch-22. Yeah. So I, I, Tom's approach was 
screw this. You know, we're not going to take this adversarial approach. We're going to say to them, listen, we know you know more than you're telling us. We're not stupid. The people have a right to know whether you agree or not. But tell us what you can tell us. At least point us in the right direction. If, if there's security issues, obviously there's you know, security clearances that are involved. People can't just blurt out you know, what's going on. Mm-hmm. So at least try to, you know, if we're going in the wrong direction, tell us. It's almost like that, that famous scene in All the President's Men where, you're, you know, the guy's on, Carl Bernstein's on the phone, you know, and he says, hang up, you know, if it's right, you know, um, if what I'm telling you is right. You don't have to confirm it. Just, you know, either hang up or keep staying on the line. Um, it's the same kind of thing. It's like if we're off base, you know, at least let us know that we're off base or if we're on base, you know, let us stay on base and stay on track for, for the truth. It was kind of tedious at first, Mm -hmm. but then, um, I sat down and and put together something that we called our mission statement, Mm -hmm. uh, that Tom started calling it. And that's for to the the, stars, right? Yeah. Well, it was for actually the, the secret machines project. Okay. Um, and for the first book in it, uh, it became the prologue Mm -hmm. to uh, book one secret machines, gods. And it talks about the cargo cult and, and all of that, the approach that we were taking to this material and that we were going to be very open-minded about it. We were going to rely upon primary sources as much as possible. We weren't going to speculate very much. And we were going to be guided by what we're hearing from people who would know. Um, it was a, a maybe 20 pages long, I guess. And it got circulated among a lot of people in government and the military uh, various other places, people we were talking to. And for some reason, that changed the conversation completely. Um, everybody started to say, okay, we can work with these guys. Yeah, They're on the right track. They're taking a very level-headed approach to this. It's not conspiratorial. Uh, you know, it's not adversarial. They're saying, you know, we're, we're stepping back from all of it and saying, okay, let's look at this from a fresh perspective and let's involve as many different disciplines as possible in the search for the truth behind this phenomenon. We're not going to rely strictly upon the government or strictly upon intelligence or the army or or even skunk works or places like that. We're going to broaden this. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk to people involved in neurobiology and genetics and physics, in the arts and religion and all of us. We're going to try to see if all these blind men can figure out what that elephant is in the room, you know, each from their own perspective and try to pull it together. And that got a very positive response from a lot of people and started opening doors. Well, I can see why he contacted you. <laughs> you know, that the what, what you're kind of uh, sort of a an earmark of the way that you tackle an issue is to take that kind of Herman Woke idea of I'm not just going to write about Hawaii. I'm going to write about the, the volcano explodes from the ocean floor, which creates these islands. You do it in a brisk and very readable way because you're a very talented writer as well. And that's another thing that I think has long been missing from the area of reporting that you do. And I think that the only other person who I think was as readable was Jim Mars. And, you know, we, we did lose Jim Mars last year. And yep. um, I respect a lot of the research that Jim did on remote viewing and a few other things, but I also feel that like a lot of people in the field that he sort of became, I guess, oh, what's the what's the right word to use? Um, a little too enchanted with the material to the point that it was no longer about raw reporting that a lot of opinion came through. 
And that's a really difficult thing to measure when reporting on something that isn't taken as absolute fact. And a lot of the reporting that he was doing was about things that many, much of the public might have been skeptical about. And so when he was writing about UFOs or other things, sometimes there would be speculation would work into it into a way that wasn't um, expressly um, pointed out to be speculation. And and other people like um, Joseph... um, um, Farrell, who I think has has done some incredible research, and I would say that his speech on um, on the post war um, Nazis is the kind of the the other side to that secret space program speech that you made. That I think that those two things are are, are two of the things I think I've shared more than any other thing on social media. Um, you know, your talk in Amsterdam and his talk on on the um, on the post war Nazis. That um, that these two things, which are very related and very related to the secret space program, that even um, that even Farrell has on many occasions, and especially in in his last um, ten or so books, um, made sort of flights of fancy. Um, in as much as it was no longer just reporting, it was no longer just putting cohesion to actual reports, but a lot of speculation. And so I can see that there are so many of those people that might be kind of considered go-to guys, but that they've sort of, I don't want to say they've tainted their reputations, but I think that they've murkied the water a little bit by um, not necessarily making claims, but but giving credence to a lot of things that are were not proven, were um, not just unproven, but possibly unlikely um, by standing be- behind things that turned out to be complete hoaxes. And that you, among everybody on the landscape have, have, to my knowledge, never done that. I mean, you've always, you always seem super careful in the way that you phrase things. And especially, you know, what we've been talking about is we've been talking about the UFO phenomenon. I love that you, you couch it like that, that, um, that UFO, of course, is just an unidentified flying object. It's, it would be a assumption to say that it's alien technology and that becomes, you know, a different type of buzzword. And once it's framed in that way... Hold on for technical difficulty. I apologize. <laughs> All right. So as we were just talking about with, um, you know, with regard to um, the clarity of message, you know, I think that it it really does speak volumes about where you come from as a writer, you know, even um, just the the approach to writing, that your style is concise, it's um, entertaining, and um, and it comes out of I think uh, you got who was it that wrote the foreword to Unholy Alliance? Uh, Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer, and you were a part of the Norman Mailer Society. Yeah, I was a charter member. I've known, I knew Norman for I don't know twenty years. I suppose we lived in the same neighborhood basically, mm-hmm. and um, I was best friends with uh, the woman who became his uh, his sort of lifetime secretary, editor, everything else. Uh, uh, within the, the mailer compound, you might say. So, yeah, um, it, this is the thing. When you're writing about this kind of material, the the tendency to speculate and the tendency to go off in flights of fancy is too real because you're not dealing with a lot of very hard data. Right. right? You're, de- you're dealing with sightings and you're dealing with people's experiences and you're dealing in some cases you know, with military records and government records. If you just stick to that, the truth is a lot stranger than the fiction. Mm-hmm. It's just the tendency, the temptation is to is to make stuff up. As or to we try know and from make the sense of it, right? Yeah. 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 Sure. 
And that's that's the problem. I mean, somebody like Jim Mars or Joseph Farrell, I have tremendous respect for both. The thing is that once you get entangled with this, the the bizarre nature of the UFO phenomenon is such that it lends itself to this kind of, of speculation. And you start to find yourself following almost a mystical path through it uh, in order to get at the truth. And the, the sort of the, the point we wanted to make in Secret Machines, gods, was that you didn't have to do that, that it does lend itself to that. Religion um, itself is possibly based upon some kind of contact. It's based on, you know, um, some sort of, uh, of traumatic experience between human beings and something else. Right. And that this may have jump-started religion. So the idea that there's a mystical path through this is sort of baked into the whole UFO phenomenon. It's really hard to get around it because we've projected so much, so much weirdness onto the UFO phenomenon, to what we expect from it, that trying to get back and step back and pull all that apart and say, let's just go back to what they actually said. Mm-hmm. That's, to me, the, mo- the more interesting part. Let's stop trying to prove that the aliens built the pyramids, you know, right, right. Uh, or something like that, because it's eventually it's going to be proven not so. Right, right. right. Uh, you can speculate only for so long, and eventually you look like an idiot. So yeah, yeah. what we wanted to do is say, let's step back from that. Let's, what did they actually say? That, what did the Egyptians say, you know, about, about their life, about why they do what they do? What, what do they actually say? What are their, their stories about? And the same thing with the ancient Jews, with the with the Torah mm-hmm. and with the Tanakh. What do they say in there? What what are, what what are they trying to convey to us? What are the mysteries that they that they struggled with, just as we're struggling with mysteries today? Are these the same mysteries? Do they have any resonance with each other? So, I appreciate you know um, what you said. Of course, we're me personally. I've always wanted to prove whatever it was I I had discovered. Uh, in the course of my research, I wanted to sh- to say to people, listen, I'm not making a judgment call here. I'm giving you the evidence. This is what I found. Isn't this really weird? You yeah. Know? Isn't yeah. this very strange? What do you think it is? You know, without going in and talking about, you know, Space Brothers or something, I just wanted to go into it and say, this is this is what we're uncovering. This is what they've told us. Um, these are my sources. You know, what do you think? What do you think, you know, is is what does all this mean? And I think that's the approach that Tom liked from the Secret Space Program and, and Sinister Forces and books like that. And he thought, well, this is the right way because I don't have a I don't have a hobby horse on this, you know. I'm not I'm not pushing an agenda where you have to believe what I believe. I'm not even sure what I believe. I just know that the evidence is pointing in in this specific direction. So I wanted to to follow that and see if there if it's falsifiable. You know, can we is are there other explanations? Mm-hmm. Um, for for what I'm I'm talking about, so that's the approach that we wanted to take, and that's why I think we started to get a bit more respect from sources within the government when they realized that we were actually quite honest where all of this was concerned. We didn't want them to come to us and say, "Yes, it's Space Brothers," or "Yes, it's Space Demons," or you know, it was Nazis or whatever, or the Soviets. We just want to know what is it, you know, what do you think it is, guys, you know, uh, what what conclusions have you drawn or have you drawn any or is it even possible to draw conclusions 
Right. So we were open-minded. We were very open-minded, but we knew there was something to the phenomenon. We wanted to know what it was. Now, when you had been contacted by Tom, what, what he had already been in contact with John Podesta. Um, I think he had tried to make contact with John Podesta. I think Podesta hadn't really come on board until just shortly after I was. We we met him in 2015. Mm -hmm. People have gotten the dates on that wrong. We met him in, uh, I think it was June of 2015 in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And that's about six months, seven months after I got on board. So that's um, when he would have been a, the um, the assistant to the Secretary of State. Um, she No, she had just become the candidate. She had just declared her candidacy for the, the, the to be president. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in 2016. Oh, right. So, so John, she had, John Kerry had taken over in, in the um, in, right. in state. In the interim. Yeah. She, he, yeah, he was secretary. So John Podesta had worked for the Clintons, had worked for Obama in the Obama White House. Uh, he was very well known for his interest in UFOs. And he had written that forward to the Leslie Kane book. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very good book on, on UFOs, obviously. So uh, we knew that. But, you know, getting him to sit down for an interview, especially one that was going to be taped, that was just a lot trickier for a lot of reasons, obviously. And he had just started with the campaign. Yeah. But by that time, he had he sat down for it. I think there's photographs of it floating around the internet. And uh, I met him. We we all did. We went to D.C. and we had our questions. And he was a very open um, guy. I mean, he he tried to. He was one of those people who tried to point us in the right direction by saying. Number one, you have to understand how the classification process works, what constitutes a classified document, why documents are classified, how they're unclassified. Then you have to understand how government works. You know, can the president just say, give me everything you have on UFOs? That's not actually possible. Or it's possible the president can say that. Right. But the amount of material he or she would get back would depend on a lot of things, depend upon who he was talking to. Right. It would depend upon, you know, is he talking or is she talking to the Air Force, for instance, and the Air Force Chief of Staff? And with the Air Force Chief of Staff, nowhere to go. Is there a big box, you know, at Wright-Patterson, Mark UFO? You know? <laughs> right, right. No, there isn't. Right. There isn't. It's, it's scattered throughout, you know, it's through the infrastructure. There is no one place to go to get everything. Different groups had their different fingers on it, as we now know right. from the revelation made only a few weeks ago, right? There was an organization at the Pentagon no one knew existed. Yeah. None of the ufologists knew this place existed. You know, they didn't know it. I mean, it, they, it had been appropriated. Harry Reid had earmarked the money for it and got the agreements of other senators. This whole thing had gone through and the ufologists didn't know. We did find out eventually. And again, I, I credit Tom's approach having us to get us to this point where Tom is saying, you know, we want to do something positive. We want to show this in a positive light. We want to show that we can relate with the government in a positive, non-adversarial way where this material is concerned. And also government is kind of a misnomer. You know, there's government and there's government. There's the, the people who are lifelong uh, politicians or lifelong um, functionaries in the government. These are two different groups, right? Right. Politicians come and go. They get voted in and out. But the guy who, you know, stamps your your um, Social Security check has been there for like 30 years. Yeah. Uh, and he's getting one himself, right? right so these are, right. these are different different people, right? They're different classes and different sorts of people with different uh, backgrounds and different uh, expectations and different priorities. 
So you have to know who you're dealing with within the government. You have right. to identify the right people. Now, ironically, it's, it's been it's taken this long. I mean, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and of course, ironically, it was that massive um, Clinton data dump that um, happened through WikiLeaks that um, that drew a lot of attention to Podesta's emails with Tom, and yep. you know it, it's interesting that um, that that really actually helped the cause that that helped people to take Tom seriously you know that um he had said that he was in contact with people that were high ranking officials um connected to important people in government and when that um doxing happened and everybody was able to read it and it was because it's such an odd aspect of the story you know rock stars right. are contacting candidates <laughs> yeah. assistants about ufos that that went to the top of the news cycle and rather than it be a kind of ridiculous thing it was like oh this guy's been talking about ufos for a really really long time holy crap what if what what if everything he's been saying all along is true you know, we've sort of assumed that it was just an eccentric rock star, you know, following whatever his his muse is. And, and now we see that there are a lot of people that are taking him very seriously. Maybe we should take him seriously, too. And I think that that those those two things happening back to back with the data dump and then a certain amount of disclosure happening shortly thereafter, that, um, you know, the, the to the stars um, company that Thomas set up really kind of started off quite strong and and it's very interesting to see how this is going to um, unfold and expand into the different types of media and the different types of reach and you know I, I always have to kind of preface whenever I'm talking to um, you know the average layperson about this type of stuff that there's all the stuff that's out there and there's all the stuff that's on Gaia and there's all the stuff that's on you know um, ancient aliens and then there's Peter Lavenda and there's this project with with um, with Tom DeLonge that um, that these guys are not that approach. You know, this is not, um, you know, um, you know, someone interviewing a, a clearly mentally ill man for seven seasons of exploitation on on a niche program. You know, and Corey Good is clearly right. mentally ill, you know, and it's it makes me sad to, to kind of watch. Um, and if you've got any experience working um in in psychology or around um, uh, situations where you are required to identify someone's um, responses, you can see in his eyes he's responding off material that's being fed to him, and he's just going on a flight of fancy with it. And even with, when you look at the way his eyes turn when he's when he's thinking about what he's talking, that there are certain you know tells the way that if you play a card game, you can tell when somebody's bluffing. And it's and with him, it's 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 really overt. And I feel it's such a bummer because there is a lot of great programming on on Gaia and most of it yoga. And there's a handful of programs um, by hosts that get really good guests, but the hosts aren't worth much. And and there's a lot of, you know, just there's this too much too much cloud in the water. And and so I'm I'm always I don't recommend anybody else's stuff because it's I just don't know where when they're gonna come down and say something foolish. And I really feel like when I've looked at your body of material speaks for itself. And with well, the latest book well, is, and, and the cargo cult aspect of it, I can see how that just really frames it in, in precisely the correct way. Well this was this was a concern of mine from the very from the very beginning was that, you know, Am I going to lose whatever credibility I have by getting involved in a UFO project? Right. right. Because because the community and the whole field has been so sort of um, hijacked 
by a lot of you know, it, it's it's a cottage industry yes. basically and with ufology since no one has come out until now from the government to say yes or no one way or the other not definitively uh, people feel free to make stuff up right because they're they're secure in the fact that nobody will ever prove them wrong because they can never be proven right it's just not as they say falsifiable right right so they can come out and say almost anything and i didn't want to be one of those people who was coming out and saying almost anything. And I, I, you know, Tom and I had that understanding that this is not what we're about. This is not what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. Tom may have a lot of ideas about the phenomenon. Um, you know, he speculates as much as anybody does. And I do too, to my, privately. Um, but I wouldn't go out there and, you know, and put it on the line and say, this is what it is, you know, believe what I'm saying and everybody else is making it up. Mm -hmm. So the idea is let's just pre you know, pre present evidence Otherwise, we're going to fall into that trap and people are going to assume, you know, that we're just another um, a cottage industry trying to make money off of this. And that's right. the other issue, by the way. People think this is some sort of some people think it's sort of a, a money making scam, you know, from the part of Tom DeLong. Tom doesn't need this. Right. You know, he has an income. Yeah. Let me just be perfectly clear among anybody else in the UFO community um, before or after present or, or, or from past. Tom does not need a dime from ufology. This is a labor of love. This is a mission. You know, yeah. so he's yeah, I mean, he clearly his, left his, 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 his he left his number one cash cow to follow something that he really yeah. believes in. And yeah. I mean, we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't put out there the fact that if he really wanted to make money, he could just release another Angels and Airwaves record. You know, that it doesn't right, even exactly. require, you know, rejoining Blink-182. Um, you know, that here's a guy who has, he could he could produce another T-shirt, you know, and, and offer right. it up on online for fans yeah. of, of his prior project. Sure. That um, when it's interesting, I, I've, I am a member of To The Stars, and, and so when I'm looking at some of the posts on Facebook and the other social media, you can tell people who've kind of come in it through Blink-182 or through Angels and Airwaves, sure. and you can tell people who've, who've come in through the... Um, you know, the ufologist kind of, of areas. And then there's people who I, I think are relatively skeptical, but maybe um, found out about the, the Podesta emails and the data dump and are curious. And the comments really reveal a lot about what brought people there. But what's interesting is there's that expectation among a certain group of people who are who are part of this community that want that kind of overt speculation you know that because they've been groomed yeah. to expect it for decades and decades and decades whether it starts with um um Whitley Strieber and um you know communion and how that kind of became its own cottage industry in a way and mm -hmm. and and other people who have who've come out in explained uh, their their particular encounters or supposed encounters with um, be it aliens or or um, UFOs and there's a certain expectation that things are going to line up in a cookie cutter way and I think what was really important in what you wrote in gods and and starting with that cargo cult aspect is to say you know it's only recently that we've we've started to follow this this really narrow path of what we expect and that's really only been mirrored in fiction. If you go back and look further back and you look into religion, you look in history, this is the way that this has been before. And there's probably a lot more to it. So let's let's just look at what, what we know and let's um, see where we can go from there. And I think that it's that structure 
that has always been lacking from every other report, which is always anecdotal. And so right. can you talk to me a little bit about that split between, especially when you're writing, because you, you're covering a lot of different stuff, that um, you start from a point where there is a, a an incident and there's reporting and then there's um, secondary reporting and then you have to find a way to make sense of it in the context of an overall narrative that you're that you're telling. Now, I have to assume that your background in in creative writing has helped to make you a better nonfiction writer. Um, well, thank you for that. My my background in creative writing, of course, is much older than my nonfiction. I just couldn't sell right. fiction. So, right. So you. You know, nonfiction is sort of the last resort for a fiction writer, right, yeah. if they want to get published. And so my very first published book was on Holy Alliance. Mm-hmm. And um, but that was based on my actual, you know, physical presence in South America, you know, uh, hunting down things that I had heard of that sounded fictional and which other people had claimed were fictional. Um, a guy called Ladislas Carago had written a book called Aftermath, and he mentioned this place in Chile. And that sounded absolutely absurd. I mean, you know, a weird encampment with strange religious rituals, and it was all Nazis living there. I mean, it was like, that was impossible. It, was, it sounded like total fiction. This Colonia And he Dad. had been attacked. Colonia Dignidad, yeah. Yep. And he had been attacked for, you know, for believing all sorts of impossible things. He believed that Martin Borman had escaped uh, to South America. And that book was about, you know, the, the underground Odessa and how they moved people. And a lot of people, Farrago uh, was a really, very well-respected historian. He had written Patton. He had written Game of the Foxes. He had written all of these respected books on World War II history. But because he suggested there was a Nazi underground and that Borman may have escaped, uh, they thought he had lost his mind. Right. Uh, his reviewers, his critics, and they went after him. Um, so I'm very sensitive to that kind of a situation. And I went down to South America to see, okay, is this fiction or is it fact? And it was much more fact than uh, I had been, you know, ready for that I had bargained for. It was really fact. Colonia Dignidad. Well, yeah, you end up you, you're taking a taxi and it goes up to the top of the hill and there's a gate and a limousine comes out and they let the taxi yep. in and the gate closes and then these. This is in the middle of of um of south chile chile and south america and during pinochet during pinochet (laughs) and these germans are there and asking you what you're doing there and the taxi cab driver is thinking that they're going to kill you and um and you're able to kind of talk your way out of it and they basically are like okay there's a ticket waiting for you at the airport you're out of here in 12 hours you're dead right and so and that's when, what happened. And then you get yeah. back to, to to America and there's American Secret Service there waiting for you. Yeah. And to make sure I got off the plane. Yeah. <laughs> and this was something that, you did on a whim. This is like nineteen seventy nine. How old were you? Uh I had turned twenty eight. I was gonna be twenty nine later that year. Oh, the things we do in our late twenties. Oh, jeez. You tell me <laughs> I mean what an idiot, you know, really. But I mean, I don't know how I got out of there. You know, in one piece. I mean, especially now they've done a lot more reporting mm-hmm. on Colonia Dignidad since the fall of Pinochet. They've raided the place a number of times. There's a excellent YouTube videos on, on the place online. You can watch it. And uh, it was a really a hideous, hideous place. They were doing all sorts of bizarre experimentation, mm-hmm. developing weapons of mass destruction. They had sarin gas canisters. They were ready for World War Three down there. And a uh, massive and child molestation ring that was happening in 
in that place as well. Um, And I remember when I first heard these stories, I think it was um, in interviews you had done with uh, Georgianne Hughes, um, who is regrettably no longer with Uh us. It was a great voice for alternative um, reporting. Um, That shortly after that, a movie was made starring the actress from the Harry Potter films about that exact Mm -hmm. situation. And yep. people can watch it on Netflix. And I don't remember the name. It might be called The Colony, actually, I think. And, the Colony. I think yeah. so, yeah. And it's it's mm-hmm. kind of built from your your reporting on what happened to you in 1978 and then when, when the um, the military came in after the coup and took that place down. But um, yep. I think we're going to save all of that for, the, for our follow-up episode. And I want to thank you for coming on and talking about um, your project with Tom. And um, so tell everybody where they can get a hold of more information about To the Stars and the projects that you're working on. Sure. Well, To the Stars is pretty easy to find online. They have a Facebook page. They have their own website as well, the To the Stars Academy. Just Google To the Stars and you'll find a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, As for me, uh, I'm also, for my sins, on Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, pretty much forced onto it at gunpoint by To The Stars. <laughs> yes. Um, but I also have a webpage, peterlavenda.com, which, you know, I update with uh, some irregularity. <laughs> but um, I do update it. I do you know, post things when I'm able to because I'm in the midst of writing projects right now up to my ears, so I don't post as often as I should. Mm-hmm. And the books, of course, are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. And I think if you go to Amazon and you just type in Peter Lavender, there's a large selection of, of the books that you've written. And sure. I actually, I recommend them all. I mean, there's really, there's no bad place to start. Um, probably the easiest place as far as what we've been talking about is, of course, by the Gods book, which is um, um, yep. the, the latest book and part of the Secret Machines project. Um, and then I would say go back and pick up Sinister Forces 1 through 3, and then Unholy Alliance, Ratline, and The Hitler Legacy. And then you can kind of go from there. You've written incredible books about um, the parallels between uh, Tantra and um, early uh, Gnosticism and um, Jewish Kabbalah. And you've written a, a number of books about um, you lived in, in, in the Far East for quite a long time and became quite familiar with a lot of the, the um, ancient um, religious and spiritual practices that and how they feed into modern and Western context. So again, I want to thank Peter Lavenda for this first of of two episodes that we'll be doing with him. And again, I hope you've enjoyed this and please listen to the second one as well. I am Matt Kennedy. This has been Pod Sequentialism. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.